Hear the word of the Lord coming from Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he and Abram and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down to the, on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The Lord of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as Brandon preaches this morning, we pray that he would have a spirit-formed boldness and power as he preaches the gospel. Thank you for the way that you've gifted him to shepherd our church, remove any distractions, and stand in his way from experiencing what you have to say for us. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Happy Valentine's Day. I remember uh, early on in my marriage, we were going to celebrate Valentine's Day, but money had been tight. And so I had this idea, and I went to Alicia. I said, what if we didn't exchange gifts this year? And she said, well, I'm fine with that. But here's the thing. I I don't want you to then show up with a gift, and then I don't have anything to give to you. I said, well, that that sounds great to me, because we can't afford it. Now, our plan that year was to go to dinner with some friends of ours. This was another couple, and they were a little bit older than us. They had led us to Christ. Uh, They were a few years ahead of us in marriage. They were kind of mentors of ours, and I arrived at their house before Alicia did because I was coming straight from work. 
And as soon as I arrived, they said, hey, Brandon, what did you get Alicia for Valentine's Day? And I said, well, we agreed that we're not going to buy each other gifts. And they looked at me like I had two heads. They said, Brandon, how can you be so naive? Don't you know that when a woman tells you that she does not want a gift, what she actually means is, you better get me a gift. And I said, well, I don't know about that. I, you know, Alicia and I, we discussed it, and they said, Brandon, don't you want her to know that she's loved and cherished and valued? And I said, okay. So they, so they went around their house, and they found like some nice things that I could give to Alicia. That wrapped up, I had them wrapped up, and then, uh, you know, they're the kind of people who just have extra greeting cards lying around. So... Um, they had one, and I just wrote a quick little love note in there. And then when Alicia arrived, I presented her with this surprise gift. And immediately I realized that I had made a big mistake. Because Alicia did not feel loved and cherished and valued in that moment. She felt betrayed and like I had not kept my promise because I hadn't. Now, it wasn't a huge deal. It didn't ruin the evening or anything like that. We laugh about it uh, to this day. But I did learn something uh, then about what it means to keep my word and to do what I say I'm going to do. And the truth is that we, we live in a world that is full of broken promises, you know, companies, they promise us that their products are going to last forever and they're going to make us so happy and satisfied. Politicians, they make all kinds of campaign promises that they forget about the moment that they're in office. We have friends who promise us that, hey, when the school year ends or when we move away, like we're still going to be best friends forever. We're never going to drift apart. Lovers promise each other that they'll be together forever. Parents promise their kids all kinds of stuff that turns out not to be true when they're grown. See, people make promises all the time. Promises like, I'll never drink too much again. I'll never lose my temper again. I'll never overeat again. I'll never look at another woman again. I'll never spend too much money again. I'll never again forget to call when I said I would call. We've all experienced it. Somebody making us a promise and then kind of letting us down. And we've all done it to others, not keeping our promises. And I think that this creates a, a genuine problem for us and God. See, because we're promise breakers. And we live among promise breakers. And that's what we know. And it shapes how we view life. And then we, we pick up God's word and we read the wisdom of the Proverbs or the Psalms or we consider the moral law or we read the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. And yet we cannot help but doubt because after all, we pray for people to be healed and they still die. And we pray for marriages to be reconciled and they still end in divorce. We pray for God's provision and we still get laid off. And we pray to overcome temptation 
and yet we still continue to struggle with the same sins over and over. It just seems like more of the same. It seems like more broken promises. But church, we cannot allow our experiences with the brokenness of his world to taint how we view God. Because he is the promise keeper. He is faithful and true. He always keeps his word. And we can rely on him alone. His promises are true. And he will never let us down. Now, I know it's not always easy to believe this. But I do believe that we're able to find assurance of his faithfulness. And our text today, it's, a, it's about this covenant, this promise that God makes with Abraham. But a covenant is only as good as the word of him who upholds it. Our big idea for today is, in a world of broken promises, God can be relied on. And this morning, what we're going to do is, we're going to take a look at the promise that God makes to Abram. And then we're going to see how this affects him and what implications that it has for us. And then finally, we're going to see how we can be assured that God will keep his promises. So let's look at this promise. God makes a big promise. Last week, Ryan took us through this great story of when Abram rescued Lot. This was a great moment in Abram's life. He demonstrated great faithfulness in God when he took 318 men and he chased four armies out of the region. And you might think that when he came back, he was feeling pretty good about that. But that's not what we see in Scripture. What we see is that he was afraid. Now, maybe he was afraid that these four kings were going to kind of regroup and come back and retaliate. Or, or maybe he was afraid that he had offended the king of Sodom when he refused his gift. Or maybe he's just anxious about the fact that here he is in this promised land, and yet he's still just a wanderer without a home. Whatever it was that he was afraid about, God noticed. And God decided to bring him some comfort uh, through a vision. Genesis 15.1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, I'm not 100% sure why the, the ESV translators put those words shall be in there because they're not in the original language. Uh, I actually like the translation in the NIV better, which says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. You see, this makes sense to me because Abram had just rejected that giant gift from the king of Sodom. He had given up these riches. And it's like God is saying to him, like, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need that stuff because you already have an exceedingly great reward in the fact that I am with you. But I don't think that riches were the issue that was on Abraham's heart. See, I think he was thinking back to what we read about in chapter 12. He was thinking back to the promise that God had made to him when he called him to leave his home in Ur. 
He promised him that his name would be great and that he would be made into a great nation and that in him all the families of the world would be blessed. Now don't forget, Abraham had been 75 years old when God made that promise and he's not getting any younger, right? Maybe maybe he was just starting to doubt a little bit. Is God going to keep this promise? Now, I don't know how often God gave visions to Abram. But it seems like in this moment, he's like, hey, I've got God's attention. He's talking to me right now. I'm just going to be bold and ask him. This is what he says. He says, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then they're still in a vision, but they go outside and they say, Look towards heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now, in Abraham's day, there were no such things as old folks' homes. Like you were, when you got old, you were taken care of by your children using the inheritance that you had left to them. And if you didn't have children, the custom was to adopt a servant in your household. And they would then become your heir. And when you got old, they would care for you. Apparently, this is what Abram and Sarah had done with Eliezer. Now, I'm not really convinced that Abraham was complaining to God here. Uh, I think maybe he was just using this moment of vision to, to find out more about what God's plan was. See, he, he had done everything that God had commanded him to. But this land that he had been told would be his own, it was occupied by a bunch of Canaanites. Yeah, this is another opportunity to say like, hey, God doesn't seem to be keeping his word. But whether he's complaining or just talking, God gives him an answer. He confirms that it's his plan that Abram will have his own son who will be his heir. And then he takes him outside and they look at the stars. Now, there were, there were skilled astrologers in that day. They had, they had cataloged the stars and the constellations. They'd measured the distances between them. Uh, they were very smart people and very sophisticated. They also believed the stars were engraved on the bottom of a great stone dome that covered the heavens, so they didn't, they didn't get it all the way right, but nevertheless, they, they knew a lot about stars. And they all agreed it was impossible to count them. There were just too many of them. In Abram's day, when there was a quantity that was too big to count, they would refer to it as the stars in the heavens. See, God was making clear to Abram that he was going to do something truly amazing. First, he was going to give Abram and Sarah a son in their old age, despite her barren womb. But if that was not enough, the descendants of Abram were not just going to be a great nation, but they were going to be innumerable, un countable. This is a huge promise that God is making. 
It's not something that Abram could have ever done on his own. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight. We know what happens with Abraham. We know that he has a son, Isaac, and that his descendants do, in fact, take possession of the land, and they become the nation of Israel. And we know that under the great kings of David and Solomon, that it becomes a very great and influential nation. And we know that there are millions of people alive today who are direct descendants of Abraham and Sarah. We know that God kept his promise. Now, I'm not so sure we could say that his descendants are innumerable. I think maybe if we tried, we could maybe come up with a number of how many Jewish people there have been in the world. But I don't think that God misled him or lied to him. I think there's more to the story of Abraham's descendants than, than is immediately apparent. And our next point is going to kind of help us understand that. But you'll have to bear with me a minute because it, it takes a minute for us to get there. What we see next is that Abraham believed in God. Genesis 15, 6 says, He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, my favorite author is Douglas Adams, and he once wrote this, There is an art to flying, or rather a knack. The knack lies in learning how to throw yourself at the ground and miss. Now, that's silly, right? It's silly because we know that no matter how bad our aim is, if we throw ourselves to the ground, gravity is going to kick in and ensure that we don't fly away. We all believe in gravity. We, we believe in it so much we don't even really think about it that often. Could you, be, could you imagine what life would be like if we didn't believe in gravity, if we didn't trust it? That if we didn't think, like, maybe it's not always going to be there when I need it. We would never step out our front door, right? We would, if we did, we'd take a tentative step or two before we let go of the handle. This is what that word believed has this connotation to it. It's, it's a belief that something is so dependable that it enables one to act on that belief. We can walk out our front door without ever thinking about the possibility that we might just tumble off into the sky. This is the kind of belief that Abraham had. Now, we know from his choices in life that uh, he held it, it uh, to varying degrees. Abraham did not have an um, absolute faith. We know that he had doubts. In the next chapter, Ryan's going to going to take us through uh, the story of a time where Abram allows his unbelief to cause him to sin in this misguided attempt to try and bring about God's promise in his own strength. The Apostle Paul writes about this a little bit in Romans 4. In verse 18, he says this, in hope he believed against hope. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. There was no hope that he would become the father of many nations. And yet, 
he believed. Paul goes on, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead because he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So why did Abraham believe? How could Abraham believe? How could he possibly be fully convinced? He was old and his wife was barren and God so far had not fulfilled any of his promises to do the impossible. There was no empirical evidence for him to rely on as a basis for his belief. And that's just the thing about belief. We can't do it on our own. It's not something that we can muster up. It's not something that we can create or we can decide to have or that we can choose for ourselves. It's something that God does in us. And it depends on the free gift of faith. And it quite often defies our understanding. Paul says this, Romans 4, 16 and 17, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God brings our dead heart to life as it says in Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works. God called existence God called into existence Abram's faith by taking his dead heart and making it alive. And that is why and that is how he believed that God would keep his promises. Let me ask you a question this morning. What is it that you're not believing? What truth do you see in God's word that you're not trusting him with? Is someone sick? Is someone in need? Are you struggling with some kind of sin or broken relationship? Or do you just need to experience that peace that surpasses all understanding? See, believers struggle with disbelief. Just as Abram will continue to make big mistakes in moments of doubt, we do the same. Remember that story of the man who brought his son to Jesus for healing and, and Jesus told him, all things are possible for one who believes. And the man cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. That man got it. He knew who his savior was, but he also knew that he still had the same sinful nature inside of him that made him doubt. Just as we can't manufacture that faith 
that causes us to believe in Jesus. We can't manufacture the faith that causes us to believe he will keep his promises. We have to cry out to Jesus and ask him to increase our faith. That's a prayer. And we have to keep reading and hearing his word because we're told that faith comes from the hearing of the word of Christ. Now, Abram's belief led to an interesting result. We see that Abraham was counted as righteous. As amazing as it is that God could create belief within Abram, even more astounding is that his belief was accounted as righteousness. Why would God do that? I think for most of us, there's this tendency to, to read this verse and we think that, that Abraham was considered righteous because he believed. See, we think we're supposed to believe. That's what we're supposed to do. Abraham did that, and therefore he was righteous. But as we just discussed, Abram's belief was not something that he did, but something that God did. Paul asked this same question in Romans 4, uh, verses 1 and 2. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. But then he answers his question in verses 4 and 5. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. See, what Paul is talking about is what theologians call imputation. This is a theological word that comes from an accounting term. And it, it literally moves taking something from one account and, and uh, placing it in another. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul explains this as, as he's talking about how mankind is being reconciled to God. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, in our column, uh, there was no righteousness. And Jesus took the righteousness from his column and he moved it to our column. And then he took the sin from our column and he moved that to his column. This is literally what happens to us when we become believers. Paul talks about this in Romans 5 in the first verse. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. He's talking about Adam. Remember, God made a covenant with Adam too, right? He would receive eternal life in exchange for perfect obedience, but if he sinned, then he would surely die. Adam broke this covenant, and he and all of his descendants, that's us, they're under the sin, the curse of sin and death. But then Paul goes on to tell us about this new covenant with the second Adam, which is Jesus. Romans 5, 16 and 17, the free gift of Jesus Christ is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification 
For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? This is what imputation is all about. Christ gives us freely his righteousness so that we can have eternal life from him. In the one man, Adam, we were all estranged from God. And in the one man, Jesus, we are all reconciled to him if we believe. This is what happened to Abraham. He didn't understand it. He had never heard the name of Jesus. And yet he did believe in Jesus because he believed that he would have descendants through the miraculous work of God. And guess what? One of those descendants is Jesus. And he believed that all nations would be blessed through his descendants. Well, guess how that happens? Through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, it's possible, perhaps, that he had heard of the promise that God made to Eve, that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. And if he had heard that, then he believed in a coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Abraham, just like every Old Testament believer, was justified by faith through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, just like you, just like me, if we believe. Let's go back to Romans 4 and verse 16. It says, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. But the words, it was counted to him. This is verse 23. The words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What this means is that whether or not we are Jewish, if we share in Abraham's faith, he's our spiritual father. This is why we have that song. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. We are all Abraham's children, innumerable people in his spiritual family. Because you see, in a world of broken promises, God can be relied upon. We can have assurance that God will keep his promises. So let's talk for a moment just about the second part of Abraham's vision. Uh, he said to him, remember that he, he's still in this vision and God is saying to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now at this point in the vision, God is reminding Abraham of that promise back in chapter 12. And remember, this land was, was not Abram's land yet. There were lots of other people around with claims to the land, and they were ready to defend them. And I think that this is, I think that Abraham is surmising like, hey, 
there's more to God's plan here than he's let me in on so far. And so he's asking God, like, hey, can you give me some assurances here? Now, people in Abraham's day, they, they, sometimes, uh, they sometimes engage in what we call a royal land grant ceremony. And essentially, it worked like this. There were two parties discussing land, of whether who owned it or who could use it or other things having to do with land. They would come together, and they would negotiate, and they would come to some kind of an agreement. And then to seal the deal, they would take some animals and cut them in half and arrange them on the ground so that there was a pathway between them. And then the two parties would hold hands and walk down the path together while reciting the promises that they were making in the agreement. And the idea was that if either of them reneged, then it would, they would become like those animals, you know, torn in half. Now, I kind of prefer just a handshake deal, but this is how it was done in Abraham's day. And this is what Abraham had in his mind when God told him to gather those animals. Now, there's a lot of stuff on the internet where people have tried to figure out, well, what, why did God choose those animals? And what is the significance of not cutting the birds in half? And there's a lot of questions that we have about this ceremony. And I don't see any of those answers in Scripture, so... I'm not going to speculate. But what we do know is that this was a covenant uh, contract being made. And, and we see that a deep sleep fell on Abram. Now remember, he's already in a vision, right? And now he's in this deep sleep, which is in a vision, and then a terrifying darkness falls on him as well. This is like inception-level complexity going on. It's a scary, kind of solemn moment. And in it, God reveals to Abraham that his descendants are not going to have it easy, that they're going to be immigrants in a, in a strange land in Egypt, and eventually they're going to be made into slaves for centuries. But then they are going to be freed in the Exodus it's also revealed to Abraham that he won't live to see this, that he'll live to, to a good old age and, and die. And that four generations later, his descendants will finally come and take possession of the promised land. And then, as Abram slept deeply, the Lord himself passed down that pathway between the carcasses in the image of a furnace and a torch. I don't know what that signifies. Other, We know that God uses fire. He was a pillar of fire by day. He was a burning bush for Moses. We know this is the Lord himself walking down the center of the carcasses. And as he did so, he speaks the words of the promise that he made to Abraham, that they would possess the promised land. Now, there's so much going on here that we could talk about, but we're running out of time, so let's just consider two quick things. When this covenant was cut, it was done in a unilateral fashion. Abram was a party. It, 
He gathered the animals. He cut the animals. He arranged the animals. He was a part of this covenant. But only God walked down that path and took responsibility for upholding it. And this just further reinforces what we've been talking about this morning, that we contribute nothing to our reconciliation with God that he doesn't provide for us. Now, why did God give Abram this dark, complex covenant ceremony? Because Abram asked him to. He asked him to give him some assurance of his promises. See, think about Abram's uh, life. He, he did not have any revelation from God except what God had revealed to him directly. Moses didn't exist yet. Not a word of scripture existed. There was nothing for him to read and take comfort from. All he had was his moments with God and his memories of the times that God had been faithful. Now maybe sometimes you read the stories of Abraham or Moses or uh, Paul and you think, man, I wish, that, I wish that God would give me a vision. I wish that God would speak to me through a burning bush. I wish that God would blind me on the road. Maybe not the last one. We think, man, if that happened to me, I would have such clarity. I would know what God wanted me to do in my life. I would know what choices to make, what paths to take. I would know what my calling is and what God wants me to do. But I'd like to suggest that we are more fortunate than anyone who lived in Bible times. See, we have this, we have this complete revelation of God that's recorded for us. Many of us have several copies of this. I would say pretty much everyone in this room probably has a version of it that you carry around in your pocket with you everywhere you go. And we don't even have to know that much about it to find out what's in it. If we, if we want to know what God's revelation says about something, we can just Google it. We live in an amazing time. And Psalm 119 tells us that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When we need comfort in times of distress, we can just open the word and find it. When, when we have questions about the proper course to take, we find guidance in scriptures. When our faith begins to falter, we can find strength in his word because we know that faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. And here's the thing, church. When we begin to doubt that God is going to keep his promises, we can open the pages of this book and remind ourselves of his perfect faithfulness. So here's my challenge to you this week. Find seven verses, that's one, one a day, that remind you of God's perfect faithfulness. Just seven. Highlight them. Write them down on a little card or jot them down in an app. Whatever your method is, it doesn't really matter. Just make it a habit to read them, one a day. Because it's so important for us to remember that in a world of broken promises, God can be relied upon. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the truth of it and the guidance that it gives to us. And we thank you, Lord, that it's true. That we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that what you have said is true. And yet, Lord, we will doubt. And in those moments, Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith as we call out to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.